Hi everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Corporate Chat Podcast. Your hosts for today are Mathis Grandchamp and myself, Loïc Meunier. We're both pursuing a Bachelor of Commerce at McGill in Finance. Thank you to our sponsors, Deloitte, Cementov Development LTD, and Red Bull. Pablo Shrugo is a partner at Mistral, a VC firm specializing in seed and pre-seed investing. He is also the founder and host of the Product Market Fit Show podcast. He previously founded two companies, namely GymTrack, which ended up getting backed by a VC firm, and MyTutor. Pablo holds a bachelor's degree in economics from Carleton University. Without further ado, here's our conversation with Pablo Shrugo. Hi, Pablo. Uh, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. Uh, you have quite a fascinating history, and we'd like to dive into that uh, with you starting uh, prior to joining Mistral. You founded two companies. Can you tell us about that experience and how you move forward after? Yeah, um, happy to. So, so really just, you know, in a nutshell, I mean, I uh, studied at uh, Carleton, studied economics and thought I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, and then through my bachelor at some point decided that like being a lawyer just wasn't going to be as good as a fit as I, as I thought there's going to be a lot of, a lot of grunt work, really uh, a lot of hierarchy and bureaucracy. And it just wasn't something that was going to be a fit. And so started thinking about different things and I had a friend of mine, Lee, who was in a similar boat. And so we started thinking about, well, why don't, you know, what about starting a business? Like for whatever reason that sounded exciting at the time. So we started working on different ideas. Um, over the course of our, our kind of university life and none of them really went anywhere like we had there was this like startup competition we applied to a few times actually one with one idea but then then end up working out and at one point as this is all happening like I was a TA on the side of teaching assistant and come fourth year I depended on that to like pay rent and all these sort of things come fourth year I basically get this email three weeks before the semester starts that they don't they're no longer having they don't have any more budget for undergraduate TA assistance. They're only going to do graduate TA assistance. And so I was kind of out of a job. Uh, and so started looking into what was close and tutoring, you know, seemed something pretty natural. So I started tutoring on the side and then I kind of that started to grow. I started giving friends of mine that were also, you know, that had, you know, good grades in some of the classes. I started handing off students to them for, for tutoring purposes and then as the year came to an end, Lee and I kind of didn't have any big ideas we wanted to run with. And so we decided, why don't we just expand on this tutoring thing that seems to be kind of working. And that that's how my tutor was born, which was really like a, it was a tech enabled marketplace, but really more of a services business um, for university tutoring. So we started running that. It took, you know, a month or two to really set it all up, but then it was pretty easy to just run it, right? Like you'd get calls, you assign tutors. We did it on a few hours a week and we lived together at the time. And so, we would just literally like spend all day coming up with <laughs> business ideas. And one day Lee gets home from the gym and this is 2014. And he's kind of like, he's like, hey, you know, wouldn't it be cool if, which is how all of our ideas started. Like, wouldn't it be cool if this, wouldn't it be cool if that, which I don't necessarily recommend, but it's the way it happened. <laughs> and so he was like, wouldn't it be cool if you could scan a QR code uh, on a piece of gym equipment and it would tell you how to do the exercise. And it was like, well, I don't know, this and that, kind of went back and forth on it. And then that kind of developed into, well, what if, you know, maybe that's not really that exciting, but like, what if the, the machine could actually track what you did, right? And we, the idea was originally on 
weight stack machines, select rise machines that are pretty simple. Like you select the weight and then the thing goes up and down. And so now we were two business guys. We had no idea about technology, but for whatever reason, we just felt like that would be doable. Again, this is over about a decade ago. Um, but then it started evolving from there, right? It was like, what if we could just, you know, that's not enough. Like what if we could track everything in the gym? And it, it kind of got ahead of itself, but at the same time, the story got bigger and that's what led to gym track. And then, you know, we can go into that, but us fundraising and doing 500 startups accelerator. Um, and that was you know, ultimately a five year, you know, uh, five year journey. Mm-hmm. And what would you say was the biggest challenge in building companies from the ground up? Uh, well, it depends on which one, right? Like my tutor was very different. Like my tutor, this is the nice thing about these kind of, um, I guess, services businesses. You know, the hardest thing about most startups is finding product market fit because you're actually doing something new. You don't know if there's true demand for that thing that you're doing, right? Whereas when you launch like a coffee shop or in our case, a tutoring business, there is existing demand for tutoring. And all you're doing is maybe changing the messaging, the positioning, the branding. And so like, you know, we put up one of the ways we did marketing was we just put up posters around the university and like literally day one, we got a call for a sale, right? Like that's how easy it was to get started. And the problem there, the biggest problem was like trying to really grow it. Like at some point you kind of reach a certain level and then it takes a lot of time and a lot of work to really expand on that. Um, so that was the challenge. And of course you have cash traps. So there's not like so many things you can do and so on. So that was the problem with that one. And then with gym track it was totally different challenges. I mean, gym track was very unique in that it was really like technology play. Like it was a lot of, you know, we needed to build hardware, um, which had not just like firmware issues, but then mechanical engineering issues. We needed to build like ML, AI to track. So there was just so much, that was really the hard part was, you know, at the end of the day, we wanted to track so many different exercises with really high accuracy. If you think about going to the gym, you do like 300 reps in a workout and you can maybe make one one or two mistakes before a user gives up on it. And so you're trying to hit like 99 point something percent accuracy, uh, which is not trivial. And so that was the hardest part with that one. But like I say, I mean, every, Every startup is is, uh, is is unique in terms of like what the hardest thing about it is. And now your partner at Mistral, what led to that transition? So the story there is like when I graduated, uh, sorry, graduated when I left, um, when gym tracks started to grow. And then at one point we, um, there was a point at which we almost you know, went through an acquisition process, which didn't work out, which led to us having to cut the team back, hire a new professional CEO. And I worked with that CEO for about a couple of years, got along really well. But then maybe about two years after working with him, you know, the team was smaller. He had taken the company in a different direction. And frankly, like he kind of had things under control. I mean, the business was not exploding by any means, but but also like had some sort of traction, really like it was either going to it was probably going to either be a small exit or it wasn't going to work, but whatever ended up happening, my impact on it felt like it was limited. Like, you know, basically I had added as much value as I could and my being there or not being there wasn't really going to change the outcome. So that's when I started thinking about maybe doing something else, started exploring different startup ideas. At one point I ended up leaving gym track and, and really going all in on just exploring different things. And that's when I ended up getting introduced to the founders of Mistral uh, had some conversations with them and decided that I should just kind of go through that door. Like the, the reality is was I was in Ottawa at the time. They're really like the only one of the only firms in town. And so, you know, I thought about being a VC later in the future. It wasn't something that I was thinking about doing at this point. But 
the opportunity was there. And so I thought, okay, well, let's let's see what's kind of on the other side of this door. And uh, and really, you know, that was five years ago. Uh, I'm in 2018, really haven't looked back. Yeah, and could you um, could you give us an overview of what you do as part uh, as as a partner at Mistral? Well, so Mistral, we're a seed stage firm. Our mission is very simple. We partner with the best founders in Canada to build startups that matter. We invest across the nation, across verticals, uh, and tend to lead seed round seed rounds. Um, and so, what I do really is meet founders. Uh, so there's a few different pieces. One is like meeting meeting founders, right, and, and speaking with a bunch of different uh, entrepreneurs across Canada, some in the US as well, um, who are building, you know, new tech startups. And and the goal is to pick like three or so a year that, that I decide to invest in. Um, and then obviously I have the, the founders that I have partnered up with. And um, so, well, you know, part of it is kind of working with them to, to help as, while I can, you know what I mean, as I can to, to build those companies. Um, and then of course, the whole fundraising aspect to to Mistral as well, because we need to like raise funds um, in order to be able to deploy them. I'd like to touch on your work-life balance. How was it during your time at the, when you were more on your entrepreneurial journey, whereas now when you're in the, the VC industry? It's a great question. I mean, look, I, the reality I think is with startups, um, especially at the beginning, like there, there is really no balance. Like that's just the reality of it. I think like, and I do believe like founders, um, generally speaking, they work way harder. Like, and you know, if you think about it, the reward is kind of aligned with that. I mean, you definitely as a founder, you work harder, you take more risk because you have all your eggs in one basket, but also the potential for big wins is higher. Like there's way more billionaires that became billionaires from being founders than did from being VCs. And the same is true at $100 million and so on. And so like, that's kind of, that's that's the kind of pie you get if things work out. And and I think for that, the thing with startups especially is you always are so under-resourced. Like you never have nearly enough resources to do what you want to do. The list of things is so, so long. You're, everything gets built from scratch. Like that's the thing that I think people often forget and don't realize, especially when you're not, you haven't gone through it is like, you make a sale and now you need, you don't even have like a contract. You got to go and write up a contract because you can't afford a lawyer, right? Like, and then you finally deliver the sale, you don't have customer service. So you got to figure out like how to support, like everything that, e like every loss is painful and every win leads to way more work. And so you're just always kind of struggling to stay afloat and then, you know, hopefully you raise some money. And, uh, but then, you, you know, if you have another growth spurt, that just adds more and more time, right? So that's really what running a startup is, uh, uh, yeah, running a startup is like. I think the VC side of life, I mean, it's definitely still busy, um, but it's it's more controllable, right? Because, you know, the thing that actually leads, I would say, to having to do so much is growth. Like the more growth that you have, the more you're just pulled in so many directions and you just have so many things you have to do. And the reality of a venture business is it's more of a services business. Like we don't grow that fast. Like we grow with every fund every three years, technically. And even then we add maybe one more employee. And so things are still like, yeah, there's still a lot to do, but it's a lot more controllable. Mm, yeah, sure. The, the approach is totally different. Now moving on to the market segment, um, how do you attract limited partners to invest in your funds? 
and what differentiates Mistral from other VC VC firms? Um, I think at the end of the day, like the way we look at it is, is especially seed stage is all about access. Like the, it's interesting. Like when I when I started at Gym Track, the thing I spent a lot of time thinking about was how do you pick winners, right? And specifically, like how does one VC know that a company is going to be a huge billion dollar outcome, uh, and somebody else think it's going to be a total failure, right? And you have so many examples of this, like. Uber pitched Mark Cuban and Mark Cuban passed on it, right? Airbnb pitched Jeremy Levine, who's a partner at Bessemer, an investor in Shopify and Yelp and so on. And yet he passed on Airbnb when it was like a series A because it was too expensive. It's $40 million right now. It's a $100 billion company. Like, what did he not know that the ones that did invest in Airbnb knew? What did Mark Cuban not know that, you know, Bill Gurley from Benchmark did know and led him to invest in Airbnb and Uber? And what I've realized over the last five years is, Nobody has that answer. Nobody has a crystal ball. And yes, obviously some VCs are better than others at picking, but I would really argue that like what makes the best VCs, especially at the early stages, seed stage, early stage sort of thing, is not so much their ability to predict the future as it is their access to great opportunities in the first place. And so bottom line is like, if you put yourself in a position where you're constantly seeing the best opportunities and whatever your sweet spot is, like for us, it's mainly Canada, for others it might be, a certain vertical or whatever, um, then you're bound to at least pick some of them. And then the outliers will take care of everything. And so that's really our um, edge is like we've been doing seed in Canada for over a decade. We've invested in many, many high quality relationships from many different types, whether it's angels or CEOs, et cetera, ecosystem players and so on. And so we put ourselves in a position where we have access to the best opportunities. We're consistently seeing the best opportunities. And as a result of that, um, we inevitably end up picking some of those, uh, and then and the returns come the other end. So you you've mentioned that um, a good to to be a good VC company, usually those that are able to differentiate themselves are because they have access to great opportunities. But we also often hear that a big part of investment decision in VC is based on the founder or the CEO, especially in pre-seed and seed stages. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, 100%. Like it's so cliche, but it's but it doesn't stop being true. The reality is it's probably the only constant. Like in the earlier you invest, the more true this is because the earlier you invest, the more unknowns there are. And so maybe the product is changes, maybe even the market changes, the value prop changes, but hopefully the founder is still the same founder in 5 years and 10 years. And so that's the one thing that you can actually latch onto. The later stage, the less the true that is, right? Like if you have a business doing 10, 20 million in revenue and you're trying to see whether it's gonna do 100 million in revenue, well, frankly, um, the business is, starts to, you know, the founder is obviously super important, but the business starts to get more and more and more weight because in some cases, CEOs do get switched out. Um, and even if they don't, like the likelihood that that business is just gonna pivot completely, obviously decreases. But when you're investing pre-revenue, and it's a founder with an idea, maybe a few customers, maybe a few proof points. Um, in 10 years, the only thing you know for sure is that many things are going to change. And so that's why the founder is just so important, because what you're kind of betting on is the founder's ability to understand the changes and react to those changes quickly and effectively over a long period of time and attract other people to that to basically to join him or her on that venture. Um, so that's why the founder really is like, and, and for us continues to be like just the number one thing we pay attention to. Mm -hmm. 
And I would like to go back uh, to LPs. What kind of investors invest in your funds? Will it be more uh, family offices or pension plan funds? Uh, what kind of investors do we found there? It's really across the spectrum. So like we have anything from individual investors. Um, some of them are, you know, they make their money in different places like real estate. Some of them are from the technology industry. Some of them are, you know, existing CEOs or former CEOs. Then we have family offices and then we have like fund of funds. Right. So like BDC and Harbor Vest are investors in our funds um, and their job is to raise money like we do, uh, but then pick instead of companies, managers, pick managers and invest in them. And so it's really kind of across that whole spectrum. And when a startup reaches a unicorn st status or it goes public to an IPO, how do you handle the situation where the founder's managerial ab abilities might not always align with the, the new need to effectively lead the company moving forward? So look, like we focus on zero to one, we focus on seed stage and like our goal is to help companies get the product market fit and a bit beyond that. Like by the time a company reaches a series B, we are not uh, generally speaking, maybe in some exceptional cases, but in most cases we are no longer all that active and we're no longer the ones that are ex experts. Like we don't pretend to know what it's like to run billion dollar companies, but we, we really do bet on us knowing what it's like to run million dollar companies and and so maybe not best position to kind of like answer that in a sense like really our focus is when you get started the sort of things that are the right motions it's the sort of things that are going to lead you astray and away from product market fit and if we can consistently back founders partner with founders and get those founders to post product market fit then uh then we'll do well and in general those founders will do will do well Great. And are there some investments you oversaw during the course of your career or you heard about that you would like to talk about? Yeah, I mean, I can I can talk about, you know, just recently, I mean, one of the investments we made out of Fund3 is a company called uh, Rome, Rome.auto. And it's a very interesting business. I mean, the, the founder uh, is what we call a super founder in that he had started multiple businesses uh, that were successful. So, he was the poor of the founder of BrainStation out of Toronto and the founder of Vi.car, which is a car subscription business out of uh, Brazil. The idea is pretty simple. Like you have Avis and Hertz that will let you rent cars by the day, Turo uh, as well, and get around and so on, even by the hour sometimes. And then you have like, obviously, you can buy a car, you can finance or lease a car, but that's usually for like multiple years. And so there's this kind of white space in the middle for people who need a car for an amount of months. Um, and that's really the gap that that Vi.car uh, filled in Brazil. And then when Apoor moved to Canada, he decided to start the same business here in Canada. It's a car subscription business. And so that's what Rome does. Um, and they've had just tremendous growth. And it's one of those companies where like the offering is just so, in a sense, simple. Like it's actually really hard to execute on it. And operationally, it's very challenging. But the offering itself is so simple that it resonates and therefore just gets a lot of pull both from like consumers and, and businesses, by the way. Um, and so, yeah, that's been, that's been still early. Like it's only two and a half, three years since we made that investment, but the company has grown considerably since and, uh, and continues to grow. And so really excited about the future of that company. Also, what trends and practice areas are you most excited for looking forward to 2024 and beyond? Yeah, it's a good question. Like I actually, you know, I'm almost like purposefully a generalist. And so I don't, you know, spend that much time 
obviously I'm in tune with what's happening, right? But I don't spend that much time picking trends in a sense. Like, and there's so many different ways to play this game. Um, the upside, I think, of picking trends is that A, you become a bit more of an expert, and B, if you're right on those trends, you might see some companies earlier than others. Uh, the downside is like picking trends means you put on blinders to the things that you didn't pick that you think are not hot. And in many cases, when you go back and you look at some of the best companies, actually this analysis done, and I forget the source, but it was like looking at every single year, what was the hottest thing that year? And they did it for the last like 15, 20 years. And at no point were the biggest companies actually in that hot sector, right? Uh, which is an interesting kind of uh, irony. Um, but but it kind of makes sense like if everybody's looking in a certain place, then how much opportunity for some true outlier is there really, right? And and there's obviously exceptions to these things. Um, but, you know, like the hype now is obviously AI and, and we think AI is definitely going to be a tailwind for so many different products. Um, and yet OpenAI started, you know, many years ago when AI was not nearly, it was still like a thing, but it was not nearly as top of mind as it is now, right? Um, same with like Coinbase, right? You look at Coinbase on the crypto side, just thinking through the trends, like by the time crypto was super hot, you know, Coinbase was already a thing for a long time. And so that's kind of part of it is like, if you don't pick these trends, you're a little bit more open-minded and in a sense, like reactive and opportunistic, right? So that when founders come to you with an idea, you're not automatically saying like, oh, this doesn't make sense because this trend isn't hot or, or, you know what I mean? This makes a lot of sense because I like this trend. You're just like looking at each idea on a true case-by-case -case basis. Um, and I feel like for me, that's just the best fit. Sure. And now moving on to the mentorship and guidance segment, what qualities do you believe are essential for effective uh, leadership in finance or in VC in general? And how can someone develop the, these qualities? You're asking like how to be great VC or... Well, what qualities do you believe are, are essential to be, yeah, to be a great VC investors? I think, um, yeah, I would say the first one is almost like some sense of, so so let me just go through them, maybe in no particular order. Like one of them is just actually empathy. So I, you know, having been, and I'm talking about the seed stages, right? Like the early stages, because that's where that's where I like position to talk about. Uh, one of the things I realized like really early on as a VC is, as a VC, you're constantly um, having founders reach out to you to raise money. And it's very easy to kind of lose yourself in that because it starts sometimes to feel like it's easy. Like I kind of, I have been, I've gone through it. So I know just how hard it is and how hard like any given big, like some wins that, you know, a board would take is granted like, oh, we hired these two people this quarter. It's like, okay, cool. But I know as a founder that when you're in the early days, getting somebody to come work for you is not easy. Like it's a massive win. And so like just remembering that piece of it and having that empathy, I think is super important because you can easily think that this stuff's easy. Like if every single week you're seeing companies that have 10K, 50K, 100K and MRR, you're like, oh, there's so many companies that have 10, 50K, 100K and MRR. And the reality is like for that one company, there was 10 others that couldn't get there, right? Because it's actually just that hard to get that sort of traction. So I think that's one thing that's, uh, that's, really important and i would assume that that resonates with founders as well right because like having somebody who's who's been in your shoes and understands it i think is really important um that's one and then the other piece i think is like 
some degree of differentiation, like however it is that you do that in order to make sure that the best founders out there want to work with you. Like that's what that's what puts you in a position to uh, to see the best opportunities in the first place. And, and that's a must. Like if you don't see them, you can't pick them, you can't win them and you're out of the market. And would you have any special tips for people looking to break into the VC industry? I, I think like, and again, talking strictly seed stage, like late stage is different, but early stage, I think the best the best training you can get, honestly, is um, is as a founder, like is either starting your own company or at the very least, like joining a very early stage company as like a number two or number three sort of thing. Like that is where you will learn the most. Um, and if you have a win, you know, puts you in a much better position uh, to either be an angel investor or, or a VC. And what would be your best advice for someone graduating from university right now? In general? Yeah, in general. Um, I mean, I really think you should think about taking as much risk as you can you know, like it, it gets harder and harder to take risk in life. And so when you graduate, you're obviously the youngest you'll ever be and therefore in the best position to take as much risk as you can take. What happens over time, almost inevitably, and you can just look at people that are five years older, 10 years older, 20 years older than you to see it, you inevitably spend more and more and more and more money as you do better 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 and as you do that you actually kind of get more responsibility but also your standard of living just rises and you just need that much more and so when you just graduate the perfect time to take a lot of risk because you're actually used to living effectively as a student and your needs you know are just not that high which is perfect time to like if you want to start a company, if you want to join a really early stage company, or if like tech is in your thing, like whatever actually attracts you that you think you got to find this, that Ikigai concept, right? Like, it's not just like do what you love. It's like do something that you like, but also are good at and also can make money at and also can help others, right? But like not settling, I think for something that's right in front of you and like maybe makes 10, 20K more than some other thing. Um, that's probably the best advice I could I could give. Yeah, it's really insightful. Thank you. And moving on to the rapid fire questions, what is the best piece of advice that anyone has ever given you? Um, hmm. It's a loaded question. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> best advice ever. Uh, <laughs> This is not the best piece of advice ever, but it's top of my mind. Uh, I just uh, reconnecting with this guy as a founder. What we visited him, he's the founder of Canada's Pops, guy Nazim in Ottawa. And when we visited him, we were two, he's probably about your age, like we just graduated university and just starting gym track and he was a successful founder. And we told him what we were trying to do. And um, any kind of, he was actually super nice about it, but he's like, you know, normally you'd want like a tech person, a designer and a product guy. You guys are just like two business guys trying to start this like tech heavy business. Blah, blah. And then he says to us, you know, I guess like if you really want to make it happen, you just you have to be so sick. They can't deny you. That's what that was his advice to me. Be so sick. They can't deny you. And it's for some reason stuck like, OK, like, let's go. Do you know what I mean? Like that. That's just you just got to get to that level really, really, really quick. Um, 
And uh, anyways, that was, that's that's that just top of mind because I've been just doing an episode with him. Um, so yeah. Sharing it here. And how how would you describe your your career in one word? In one word. Fulfilling. On a scale of one to ten, how important would you say your GPA is as a student? It just it's it totally the big. I mean, I'll give you not anyways. It can be a 10 if you want to start like a career and it can be a one if you want to start a business like it's just so case by case. And if you wouldn't be in the financial industry in the in the VC space, what would you be doing instead? Probably starting a company. <laughs> what is one book you would recommend to our listeners? Um, it's one by Viktor Frankl called. Um, let me just make sure I get the. Then the name right. I can even edit this after. Yep. Uh, yeah, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Great. All right. Well, thank you for being so generous with your time and uh, have a nice day. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, feel free to drop a comment or follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or our social medias. Have a good one and see you next time. The sole purpose of this podcast is to educate and to inform our listeners. It is by no means a substitute for professional guidance by qualified experts. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute financial or other professional advice or services. Instead, we encourage you to discuss your career options, as well as financial undertakings with other professionals who specialize in wealth, securities, and asset management, or any other field in financial services. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only, and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at a personal and individual risk. This podcast should not be considered professional advice. Guests who speak on this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. The views expressed on this platform are personal opinions and only, and should not be construed as financial advice for a given situation or from a given institution. While all attempts are made to present accurate information, it may not be appropriate for specific circumstances, and information may become outdated over time. No firm, nor any company providing financial support endorses or opposes any particular view or tools discussed in this podcast. This podcast is available for private, non-commercial use only. Advertising, which is incorporated into, placed in association with, or targeted towards the content of this podcast is forbidden. This podcast may not be edited, modified, or redistributed. The Corporate Chat Podcast has no liability for any personal activities in connection with this podcast or for personal use of this podcast in connection with personal websites, computers, or playing devices. Moreover, the Corporate Chat Podcast makes no warranty that this podcast, or the server that makes it available, is free of viruses, worms, or other elements or codes that manifest contaminating or destructive properties. McGill University and our sponsors expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or the information presented in this podcast.